War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Aylmer and Louise Maud, Book 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eva Harnick, War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, Book 7, Chapter 1. The Bible legend tells us that the absence of labor, idleness, was a condition of the first man's blessedness before the fall. Fallen man has retained a love of idleness, but the curse weighs on the race not only because we have to seek our bread in the sweat of our brows, but because our moral nature is such that we cannot be both idle and at ease. An inner voice tells us we are in the wrong if we are idle. If man could find a state in which he felt that though idle he was fulfilling his duty, he would have found one of the conditions of man's primitive blessedness and such a state of obligatory and irreproachable idleness is the lot of a whole class, the military. The chief attraction of military service has consisted and will consist in this compulsory and irreproachable idleness. Nicholas Rostov experienced this blissful condition to the full when, after 1807, he continued to serve in the Pavlograd regiment in which he already commanded the squadron he had taken over from Denisov. Rostov had become a bluff, good-natured fellow whom his Moscow acquaintances would have considered rather bad form, but who was liked and respected by his comrades, subordinates and superiors, and was well contented with his life. Of late in 1809, he found in letters from home more frequent complaints from his mother that their affairs were falling into greater and greater disorder, and that it was time for him to come back to gladden and comfort his old parents. Reading these letters, Nicholas felt a dread of their wanting to take him away from surroundings in which, protected from all the entanglements of life, he was living so calmly and quietly. He felt that sooner or later he would have to re-enter that whirlpool of life with its embarrassments and affairs to be straightened out, its accounts with stewards, quarrels and intrigues, its ties, society, and with Sonia's love and his promise to her. It was all dreadfully difficult and complicated. And he replied to his mother in cold, formal letters in French, beginning, My dear mamma, and ending, Your obedient son, which said nothing of when he would return. 
In 1810 he received letters from his parents in which they told him of Natasha's engagement to Bolkonsky and that the wedding would be in a year's time because the old prince made difficulties. This letter grieved and mortified Nicholas. In the first place, he was sorry that Natasha, for whom he cared more than for anyone else in the family, should be lost to the home. And secondly, from his hussar point of view, he regretted not to have been there to show that fellow, Bolkonsky, that connection with him was no such great honor after all, and that if he loved Natasha, he might dispense with permission from his dotard father. For a moment he hesitated whether he should not apply for leave in order to see Natasha before she was married, but then came the maneuvers and considerations about Sonia and about the confusion of their affairs, and Nicholas again put it off. But in the spring of that year he received a letter from his mother, written without his father's knowledge, and that letter persuaded him to return. She wrote that if he did not come and take matters in hand, their whole property would be sold by auction and they would all have to go begging. The count was so weak and trusted Mitenka so much and was so good-natured that everybody took advantage of him and things were going from bad to worse. For God's sake, I implore you, come at once if you do not wish to make me and the whole family wretched, wrote the countess. This letter touched Nicholas. He had that common sense of a matter-of-fact man which showed him what he ought to do. The right thing now was, if not to retire from the service, at any rate to go home on leave. Why he had to go, he did not know, but after his after-dinner nap he gave orders to saddle Mars an extremely vicious grey stallion that had not been ridden for a long time, and when he returned with the horse all in a ladder, he informed Lavrushka, Denisov's servant who had remained with him, and his comrades who turned up in the evening that he was applying for leave and was going home. Difficult and strange as it was for him to reflect that he would go away without having heard from the staff, and this interested him extremely, whether he was promoted to a captaincy or would receive the order of St. Anne for the last manoeuvres. Strange as it was to think that he would go away, without having sold his three roans to the Polish Count Golukovsky, who was bargaining for the horses Rostov had betted he would sell for two thousand rubles. Incomprehensible, as it seemed, that the ball the hussars were giving in honor of the Polish Mademoiselle Pradzietska, out of rivalry to the Ulans, 
who had given one in honor of their Polish mademoiselle, Borzozovska, would take place without him. He knew he must go away from this good, bright world to somewhere where everything was stupid and confused. A week later, he obtained his leave. His hussar comrades, not only those of his own regiment, but the whole brigade gave Rostov a dinner, to which the subscription was fifteen rubles a head, and at which there were two bands and two choirs of singers. Rostov danced the trepak with Major Basov. The tipsy officers tossed, embraced, and dropped Rostov. The soldiers of the third squadron tossed him too, and shouted, Hooray! and then they put him in his sleigh and escorted him as far as the first post station. During the first half of the journey from Kremenchuk to Kiev, all Rostov's thoughts, as is usual in such cases, were behind him with the squadron. But when he had gone more than halfway, he began to forget his three rones and Doshoyveko, his quartermaster, and to wonder anxiously how things would be at Otradno and what he would find there. Thoughts of home grew stronger the nearer he approached it, far stronger, as though this feeling of his was subject to the law by which the force of attraction is in inverse proportion to the square of the distance. At the last post station before Otnadno, he gave the driver a three-ruble tip, and on arriving he ran breathlessly, like a boy, up to the steps of his home. After the rapture of meeting, and after that odd feeling of unsatisfied expectation, the feeling that everything is just the same, so why did I hurry? Nicholas began to settle down in his old home world. His father and mother were much the same, only a little older. What was new in them was a certain uneasiness and occasional discord, which there used not to be, and which, as Nicholas soon found out, was due to the bad state of their affairs. Sonia was nearly twenty. She had stopped growing prettier and promised nothing more than she was already, but that was enough. She exhaled happiness and love from the time Nicholas returned, and the faithful, unalterable love of this girl had a gladdening effect on him. Petya and Natasha surprised Nicholas most. Petya was a big, handsome boy of thirteen, merry, witty and mischievous, with a voice that was already breaking. As for Natasha, for a long while Nicholas wondered and laughed whenever he looked at her. You are not the same at all, he said. How? Am I uglier? On the contrary, but what dignity? A princess? He whispered to her. Yes, 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 cried Natasha joyfully. She told him about her romance with Prince Andrew 
and of his visit to Otradno, and showed him his last letter. Well, are you glad? Natasha asked. I'm so tranquil and happy now. Very glad, answered Nicholas. He's an excellent fellow. And are you very much in love? How shall I put it? replied Natasha. I was in love with Boris, with my teacher, and with Denisov. But this is quite different. I feel at peace and settled. I know that no better man than he exists, and I am calm and contented now, not at all as before. Nicholas expressed his disapproval of the postponement of the marriage for a year, but Natasha attacked her brother with exasperation, proving to him that it could not be otherwise and that it would be a bad thing to enter a family against the father's will and that she herself wished it so. You don't at all understand, she said. Nicholas was silent and agreed with her. Her brother often wondered as he looked at her. She did not seem at all like a girl in love and parted from her affianced husband. She was even-tempered and calm and quite as cheerful as of old. This amazed Nicholas and even made him regard Bolkonsky's courtship skeptically. He could not believe that her fate was sealed, especially as he had not seen her with Prince Andrew. It always seemed to him that there was something not quite right about this intended marriage. Why this delay? Why no betrothal? he thought. Once, when he had touched on this topic with his mother, he discovered to his surprise and somewhat to his satisfaction that in the depths of her soul she too had doubts about this marriage. You see, he writes, said she, showing her son a letter of Prince Andrew's, with that latent grudge a mother always has in regard to a daughter's future married happiness. He writes that he won't come before December. What can be keeping him? Illness, probably. His health is very delicate. Don't tell, Natasha. And don't attach importance to her being so bright that is because she is living through the last days of her girlhood but i know what she is like every time we receive a letter from him however god grant that everything turns out well she always ended with these words he is an excellent man End of chapter 1 Recording by Eva Harnick, Pontevedra, Florida